0: Well, I tell you what, let's just do this. Let's just pray, right? Let's just get our hearts ready to hear from the word of the Lord. Father, you have blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. You have chosen us. You have redeemed us. You have forgiven us. You have, you have lavished your grace upon us. And you didn't keep it a secret, <laughs> You let us know, you gave it to us in your word that we might know these things. So I pray today that we would hear from you, be reminded again of how you are for us and not against us, and even learn what you are about doing in this life. So I pray that your spirit would just lead us into truth as we read and study from your word. I pray these things, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Well, this is the third week of Ecclesiastes, our, our third week of study. And so um, it, it actually begins a new section. Ecclesiastes is divided into 12 chapters if you're sitting and reading it in your uh, Bible. But but overall, it seems to be that there's, uh, depending on who you're reading from and studying from, there it seems to be three major or four major sections. And chapter one and two comprise, comprise the first one, and then chapter three through. Uh, somewhere in chapter 5, or it really depends on who who you're studying from. Um, Three onward comprises the second, and we're starting into a, a new section, but it doesn't stand alone. In fact, many of the arguments that Solomon is going to make for us today, many of the things that he's going to teach us today are rooted explicitly, deeply in that first section. And so, really to have an understanding of what we're about to read, to really be able to glean from it everything we need to glean from it, we need to remember what Solomon's doing. It's not been easy, right? Like, there's been some heavy truths that he's shared with us. There's some, some weighty things that he's, that he's painted, some pictures that he's painted for us that are difficult sometimes to look at. I mean, the whole theme of the book is that this vanity of, of vanities, all is vanity. Life under this sun, uh, under the sun, life in a world under the curse of God, as we've been defining it, is futile. Our efforts don't amount to what we want them to. They don't produce the fruit that we want them to. It's difficult. It's it's a struggle. It's suffering. It's it's hardship. He made that clear in the first week by pointing out that nothing is new. Nothing changes. (laughs) Nothing uh, is is satisfactory. Nothing Nothing fills that emptiness within us. And in the end, nothing is remembered. We actually proved that point as I asked the question, how many of you remember your great-great-grandfather's name? The reality is most of us don't. Some of you may have done some work in that, and maybe you know. Most of us don't remember that far back. Then in week two, he helps us see that there's no gain in this life, no profit to be had from this life by telling us his own life story, by sharing his testimony, if you will, right? I mean, we're, we're all good Christian folks. We like a good testimony. And then we hear his. <laughs> it's like, wait a minute, I wish you had shared. I, it, just, despite the, the God-given wisdom and knowledge he had, he could see and perceive, he could understand things in ways that most of us can't. And despite all the wealth and power he had, he was the king of Israel, if you remember he, he, he leveraged it all. He leveraged his power, his wealth, his wisdom, his knowledge. He leveraged every last bit of it in a pursuit to be satisfied, in a pursuit to be happy, to fill that void in his heart. And he came to this conclusion that nothing, not wisdom, nor wealth, nor pleasure, nor work, nothing from this life under the sun would fill the void in our lives. Feeling good yet? It's important we remember this. It's really where we're headed. What we're about to read and study is the direct result of of what he's already observed. He only gets to chapter 3 because he's already experienced and explained chapters 1 and 2. See, the reality is that nothing he had, no matter how much of it he had, would satisfy him. Nothing that he could do could satisfy him. And he realized this because no matter how hard he tried, he knew that one day he would die. There's a real, a real emphasis, a real weight, a real pressure upon every one of us. We cannot escape the tick-tock, tick-tock of the clock always on us. Even as you sit in this room doing something as noble as all of this, the pressure of time is on us. Just ask me. I hear it every week. You went too long. <laughs> sorry. I'm not sorry. But there's pressure. And the reality is this. That pressure is is because we know at some point we can't outrun it, we can't stop it, we can't out-leverage it. Time and the tick-tock of the clock under the sun is going to end. We're faced with it every day. And we don't know when it's going to be. That's what he points us at today. You ready? It's going to end really good, but it starts really rough. Let's read it and see. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. A season for it all. He's not just pointing out certain things. He's saying for everything there is a time for it to happen. And, And that phrase, under heaven... It's just another way for him to say under the sun, right? It's just another way to, to, to him to qualify all of his what he's about to say is based on this life living in a physical world under the curse of God, not eternally, but in this physical world in which we can observe and see things. He says there's a time for everything. And he gives us this poem to break it out. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill and a time to cast away, a time to tear, and a time to sow, a time to keep silence, and a time to speak, a time to love, and a time to hate, a time for war, and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? You hear that question? It's the same question from chapter 1 verse 3. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the busyness that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, He has put eternity into man's heart, yet, yet, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them to, than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before Him that which is already has been, that which is to be already has been, and God seeks what has been driven away. Death may be the great equalizer between the wise and the fool. This was Solomon's point in chapter 2, that that, that it didn't matter how wise you were, that you faced the same fate as the fool, eventually somebody dies. It it, it may be the the great equalizer between those who work hard and those who don't. That was his point, that you may work all your life to to amass this wealth, to amass this sense of identity, to amass this purpose, and then suddenly you're faced with death and you're going to leave it to somebody that you don't know is going to work for it. That you don't know that even care for it, that it doesn't even matter for. It. That's his point. So death is this great equalizer. It's this is great, great place at which which we stand level on the ground together. Doesn't matter how much money you have. Doesn't matter how little money you have. Doesn't matter how much stuff or wealth or or anything in this world. Doesn't matter how smart you are. Doesn't matter how dumb you are. Doesn't matter what color your skin is. Doesn't matter what your gender is. We all stand on this level playing field. Death equalizes every last one of us. But as he continued to observe, as he continued to look at everything around him, he realized that it was time that made death inescapable. The time that you have is limited. It's already been determined. You can't escape it. At some point in time, we all face this reality. If Jesus doesn't come back first, if Jesus doesn't return first, we all face this reality. And Solomon, just like everyone else, just like as the king of Israel with all the power, with all the wealth, with all the possessions, with all the wisdom, with all the knowledge, with everything he had, just like everyone else was subjected to time. The clock that God set to ticking and talking on that first day when he commanded the light to shine, when he said, let there be light, and the light couldn't help but shine because that's what his creation did. And then he separates the light from the darkness, and he calls the light day and the dark night. And he says, then, that's the first day. And it was good. That clock has continued to tick. It didn't care that Solomon was the king of Israel. It didn't matter how long his list of accomplishments was. It didn't didn't care what, what he thought he could do. The reality is is that when Adam and Eve rebelled against God, the tick-tock of the clock was no longer friendly to them. When God said, you will die, time began to work against them. When? When's it going to happen? What he found... Solomon found, and what he shows us in this poem is that he could observe the flow of time. That's what this poem is an observation of all that happens in this life. He could steward and plan his time to some degree because it's not like we don't set a plan to go out and plant and harvest. We do. But he never gained control of his time. And when my boys were younger, I just like to illustrate this, it kept coming to mind. This week, as 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 my boys actually it's been for a few weeks now. As my boys were younger, they had this lightsaber toy. They each had their own, but there was this one in particular. It was a green lightsaber, so I think that means it's Yoda's. You could correct me if I'm wrong later. Uh, but anyway, he had the, they had this green lightsaber, and it, you know the, the things that would happen that you expect to happen when toy lightsabers are turned on. The flashlight lights up the inside of the plastic tube, right? And 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 then there's these sound effects. And if you hit it against something, it sounds like. I don't know, lightsabers sound like when they hit together. I don't know. I probably can't do that without sounding even more foolish, so I won't. But one of the things that it also did was you'd hear every so often these lines from the movie, and there was this li- one line that Yoda would say that, that from this lightsaber that constantly was we would, we would walk around saying it. Control, control, you must learn control. If you're not familiar with the movie, that, that comes from a scene where Luke is undergoing Jedi training. And he is holding himself on his hands, he's standing on his hands by the force, by control of the force, he's holding himself on his hands, and and the scene has all of these crates and things levitating off of the ground around him, and then suddenly something happens, and he crumbles and falls, and all the crates come tumbling down, and Yoda says, control, control, you must learn control. And that's great for the movies. I don't mean to burst anybody's bubble, it's an illusion, right? Right? It's not true. That man's name is not Luke Skywalker. He's not really a Jedi. He's just an actor playing a part. Well, the reason I think on that and have thought about that all week long is that every one of us, in some way, tend to think that we can do the same thing that Luke is doing. Control, control. I just got to learn control. If I'm going to be satisfied, if I'm going to be happy, I've I just got to learn to control these things. I just got to control my temptations. I just got to control the world around me. If I, if I can get everybody else to do what I know is right, then the world will be a better place, right? I know. I, I, I know. I just know this. You may not agree with me, but I'm talking to a room full of control freaks. You may be sitting here saying, "No, i'm no control freak if you're a planner, why do you plan because you like control because you like to know what's going to happen I mean we try to control things all the time we try to control we, we we try to control things so that we can maintain a certain image in front of people like i'm in a i, I am in a, uh, uh, I struggle with wanting to be liked right that's just a I've shared this before Hopefully, it doesn't surprise most of you." I think we all like to be liked. I find that a strong temptation in my life to try to control circumstances and situations so that people will like me. I try to present the best image. You ever taken an interview? Put yourself down on a resume? What are you doing? Trying to control people's opinion of you. We want to control things so that we can feel safe and avoid suffering, right? I mean, don't we? I... Come on! I don't. I don't want to suffer. I don't want to. I don't want to be scared of anything. I don't want to feel bad about stuff. So we try to control our circumstances and situations, if as if we could. We try to control so that we can make sure things work out to our benefit, because really, that's what we want is our benefit. You hear it all the time, all around us. People wanting things to go their way, regardless of how it affects anyone else. Truth is, probably not much in our life that we don't seek to control, that we don't try to control, but, but our ability to really control anything is an illusion. We're no better off than Luke Skywalker in that video or in that movie trying to levitate things and keep himself upright. We don't have the power. We don't have the foresight. We do not have the ability to control these things. We can't truly control our lives. We might be able to observe the flow of time, we might be able to steward the time, and we might be able to make plans for the time, but we're oftentimes always only able to control how we act, how we react, and how we interact in certain situations, but we cannot control what comes at us. We can't control time. We can't control what time brings us. We can't control the seasons that that we step into. But in Ecclesiastes, in this poem, in this passage, in Ecclesiastes, we come face to face with the God who can. And the God who does. And just in case you're wondering, they are one and the same. I almost put two fingers, I did put two fingers up, but I'm trying to correct that. They're one and the same. Solomon introduces us to the reality that we are out of control. But God isn't. He's not, and He never has been. God sovereignly orchestrates times and seasons in our lives to accomplish His good purpose in His good time. What may seem haphazard or accidental, what may seem coincidental to us, is not to Him. These things are not haphazard. They are not not accidental. They are not incidental. They are purposeful. That's why I told you in the beginning, when we started studying this book, I don't necessarily like the, I think it's the NIV that translates the, the word vanity as meaningless. I, I, it's, it's, it's from our perspective. It seems meaningless. But when you step back and you begin to see what God's doing, it is not meaningless. Absolutely nothing meaningless at all about what's happening in this world. And Solomon shows us that clearly. He paints that picture for us in this poem. It's like, listen, there is a time For everything, everything under heaven, there is a time and a season for it. And he opens up with a time to be born and a time to die. And that continuum or that that spectrum, if you will, is that from the very beginning of our life under the sun to the very end of our life under the sun, there is a time for everything. And then he fills that spectrum, he fills that continuum by talking about planting and plucking up, killing and healing, breaking down and building up, weeping and laughing, mourning and dancing. The reality is that these 14 pairs of of spectrums, or these 14 continuums, if you will, demonstrate to us everything that happens inside of our life up to the point of death under the sun. Now, I wish I could come to you like so many might come to you and say, oh, but this is the time that you're supposed to be able to enjoy everything. The life is supposed to be just easy. It's just supposed to be painted with this beautiful little flowery picture and make us feel all good and tickle our ears and give us a warm, fuzzy feeling in our stomach. Solomon doesn't let us do that. There's a time for everything, life and death, and over and over, planting and plucking up, healing, killing and healing, loving and hating, warring and being at peace. And the beauty of this is that it's not just these extremes of the spectrums or the extremes of the continuums that he's pointing out to us. By by starting with birth and death and then painting the rest of that picture out, he's showing us he's talking about everything in between. So, a time to plant. The the, the second pair in verse 2, a time to plant, a time to pluck up what's planted. He's not just saying there's a time to plant and a time to pluck up what's planted. He's talking about there's a time to plant, a time to water, a time to to weed, and a time to harvest, and then finally a time to pull that plant out of the ground so that it can be, that the ground can be re-sowed, so that there's a new time to plant. There's this whole cycle that that he's expressing. Everything, all all the steps between, everything from one end of the spectrum, one end of the continuum to the other. He's demonstrating to us that, that there's a time for everything. And they're marked out by these major decisions, these major emotions, these major circumstances and situations. And every last one of them, they don't just highlight the desirable. They don't just paint a picture of pleasantness. They show us what life is like under the sun. They show us just how difficult it can be. To show us that it can be exciting and, and there's reason to celebrate. For every pleasant thing that there is to enjoy, there is a, an unpleasant thing that has to be endured. That is this life under the sun. And all we can do is respond what that time and what that season brings we can't control the time that we are to be born we can't control the time that we are to die in fact the scripture teaches us that there's absolutely nothing we can do to add to that now hear me i'm not i'm not i'm not calling for haphazard living i'm not just saying i'll just run out there and throw the throw all your cares to the wind and just don't try he tells us there's, there, there is better things in wisdom than in folly, right? There is reason to get up and do some work and, 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 uh, and not just sit and be, a, be lazy. There's reasons to purposefully work and plan and think and be knowledgeable and, and, and eat healthy. And, and There's time for that. But in the end, we're out of control. The truth is, and I just thought of this, we're under control. But not our own. Not our own at all. Now, just so you see, this is the reason that Solomon is is wrestling with these things. He's looking at all of this stuff. He's seeing all of these things. He's like, there's nothing I can do to change any of this. You just imagine Imagine what it was like all of, his, all of his years of pursuing wisdom and knowledge. So you go back to chapter 2 and you see his testimony. All the years of pursuing wisdom and knowledge only to find out that wisdom and knowledge wouldn't satisfy him. All the years he gave to building parks and buildings and, 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 and all the hard work that he gave in pursuit of pleasure and finding out that nothing was satisfying him. In all of that, you can't assume. It would be naive to assume that he didn't face hardship and difficulty. It's naive to assume that at, some of, at some point in time that people didn't get killed accidents didn't happen on his job sites. It, it's naive to assume that the tragedy didn't strike. It's naive to assume that Solomon went through life and didn't face any hardship. Uh, otherwise, why in the world would he ever write this poem? His life was shaped. His life was marked. He was, it, it was, it was over, um, overwhelming to him, I think, at times. And so he comes to this point at the end of this poem and he asks this question again. What gain has the worker from his toil? He's not just talking about you. He's talking about him. I've done all of this. I've worked hard at this. And look at what i got to show for it. Absolutely nothing. I've got a a pleasant thing that's faced by an unpleasant thing. I've got a desirable event faced off by an undesirable event. At some point it all equalizes out. Time keeps ticking. And I can't stop it. I can't control it. I can't get out from under it. I can't outrun it. The truth is, at some point, my clock's going to stop. What gain is there? What profit is there? What What do I get out of all of this? I've seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I've seen it all. I've seen every last thing. Spent my life trying to observe these things. You see, death removes it all. And our work, our work, amounts to nothing. But Solomon's about to do something he's not done to this point. He's about to give us a perspective that he's not shared with us to this point. See, Solomon gives us a glimpse of God's sovereign perspective. He gives us a glimpse that it's not all for nothing. As much as it may feel like it's for nothing, it's not all for nothing. He begins to let us, he begins to peel back the veil, pull back the veil so that we can see an eternal perspective. That apart from him revealing, apart from God showing, we'd have no sense of or have no certainty of. And so now we get to begin to look at things in this passage, we get to begin to look at things from a perspective, not our own. This is the realest and most honest assessment of where we're at and what we experience in this life under the sun. Thankfully, thanks be to God that that's not the only perspective to be held Solomon gives us this glimpse of God's sovereign orchestration of of his work being done and his purposes being fulfilled in his good time. You see, where we can't control time, God can. Where we can't control the season, God does. God is sovereign over these things. The poem and the verses that that follow out this, this explanation of all of this time happening and nothing we can do about it. Doesn't change the fact, doesn't doesn't remove the fact that God is at work in every last bit of it. And and the paragraph that follows that poem and all all, all of those statements about these different spectrums and different circumstances and different emotions and different decisions that have to be made. He's letting us see He's letting us see the work in which God is working in. It's God. He he comes down to this place in this paragraph where he says, It's God who has given children, the the children of man, business to be busy with. This is God's way of working in our lives. This is God's work in the midst of our lives, this poem is. He's the one giving us the business to do, it's His sovereign work to give us that business. It is God who makes everything beautiful. Look at it in verse 10. I have seen the business that God has given the children of man to be busy with. And then at the very beginning of verse 11, he says, He has made everything beautiful in its time. God is sovereignly working even if it appears he isn't. It is God who puts eternity on our hearts in verse 11 again. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. He gives us this sense that there's more, but then sovereignly, he hides it from us so that we are frustrated by the reality that we can search out all of these things and still our work in this life under the sun is fruitful. It is God who gives good gifts. Look at it in verse 12 and 13. I perceive that there's nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. We can't control this stuff. We might as well just sit down and enjoy what we can. That's his point. You're stuck. You're, you're, you, you seem to be the victim of, of time and circumstance, even though that's not true. It appears that's the So you might as well just sit down and enjoy what comes your way as much as you can. But listen to how he says this. That there's nothing better for them to be joyful and do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift. It's his gift. That we can enjoy anything. That, that that there's anything to be enjoyable. That there's anything pleasant on this list. That there's anything to celebrate, to laugh about, to, to 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 dance because of. That there's any reason to plant. That there's any reason to heal. That there's any any reason to build up. Any of those things. Any of those pleasant, desirable things that they're on this list is the gift of God, and they're to be appreciated. They're to be celebrated. But it's God's doing. He is the sovereign over this list. He is the sovereign worker of all things. and Even even when we're mentioned here, even when we're mentioned in this passage, we are doing nothing but responding to the God who sovereignly rules over time and seasons in our life. We are not sovereign. We don't have control. We can't control. I know this is difficult for us to hear. We don't know enough to control anything. We think we know what's best for us. But don't we know God knows better? We don't have the ability. We don't have the power. We don't have the presence. We don't have the the knowledge. Oh, we think we know. In this passage, we are only ever responding. God is doing the working. He is the sovereign ruler of all things. He is the sovereign orchestrator behind the the scenes that is making all of these things work together. God is sovereign over all things. Yes, even us. And this isn't just Solomon's wise observation. It is biblical truth. And If you don't want to hear it from Solomon, maybe you'll listen to it as David sings. Every day of your life is already known by God. He's known it from before the time that you ever took your first breath. He knew it while he was knitting you together in your mother's womb. He knew it when your substance was unformed. He knew you. And he knew every second of every day. Maybe that doesn't convince you. How about Isaiah? As he prophesies and speaks God's word. Isaiah chapter 46, verse 8 through 11. Remember this and stand firm. Recall Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God, there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. He is going to do what He is going to do, and there is nothing we can do to stop it. He is sovereign. We are not. My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. God does what He sets out to do. God is in control of all the circumstances and situations to ensure that His purpose is accomplished. And maybe if you don't appreciate that one, maybe Paul reminding us as he did to the church in Ephesus, Ephesians 1 through 11, reminding us that we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing. He comes to this place in, in, in which he focuses in on the inheritance. And listen to what he says. In Him we have... We have obtained an inheritance, having predestined, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things. Not some. Not one or two. Not the things that you're not in control of. All things. So you know what that means in the Greek? All things. There's not, we don't have to work hard at that. It's a universal term applied to God who does all things according to the counsel of his will. You know, he, he didn't ask you for advice, did he? Are you, are you offended by that? Are you bothered by that? He doesn't look to you to, to figure out. He doesn't look to me to figure out what's best for us or what's good for us. He knows. He works all things according to the counsel of His own will. He is sovereign. There is nothing in this world, no time or season, that God isn't sovereign, sovereignly ruling over. There is no time or season that comes to us that has not been permitted or even caused to come our way. He isn't seeking our advice in this. He isn't seeking our, our, our understanding in this. He is just simply working. And sovereignly orchestrating all things, every time and every season that you endure and enjoy, that his good purpose would be accomplished in his good time. Now I know this is difficult. I've actually been, I've actually received some negative feedback on this position. Because I'm not talking about just the good stuff that happens. That's not what this list is comprised of. And, and don't misunderstand this. I know. I'm, I'm trying to look every one of you at some point in the face. And I know your stories. I know the difficulties. I know the way things have gone, not to plan, and that you have hurt and suffered and felt pain in. It wasn't an accident, it wasn't haphazard. It wasn't purposeless and meaningless. God is using it to accomplish His good purpose. Well, what is that? What is it? Well, let's look at the text. His good purpose is to make things beautiful. I mean, we could pull out five or six. I'm I'm just going to pull out three for the sake of time. He's making everything beautiful in its time. God brings the pleasant and unpleasant to us for our good. He is making us beautiful. Don't we all want beautiful? I want to be beautiful. <laughs> and I don't mean that in a physical sense. I don't, I'm not talking about I wish I had my hair back. I'm talking about I want to be what God created me to be. Don't you want that? Absolutely, I hope you do. He's making us beautiful in our time. I love Doug Wilson's approach to this. He wrote a book. I'm not going to remember the name of it right now. I, I can give it to you after if you're interested. It's a quick read over Ecclesiastes. He writes this, A common illustration of the ways of God and the understanding of man is that of a tapestry on a loom. From the vantage underneath, little is visible but snarls and knots. You ever seen the back of a cross stitch or a tapestry he's talking about? It's kind of ugly, right? It's like, what is that? Little is visible, but snarls and knots. But above, but above, beautiful pattern of the work on the loom can be seen. You see, we are his workmanship. We are being shaped and molded in his hands. We are being woven together to be beautiful. And we may look up at the backside of that. <laughs> of that tapestry, and we may think, what in the world are you doing? But when he looks down on us, he sees the threads being woven together, and they look just like his son Jesus. You see, that's what he's doing. Don't let anybody ever lie to you. The worst day in your life was not because God abandoned you or forgot you. The hardest and most difficult, trying, gut-wrenching circumstance that you have ever endured in this life was a a time assigned by our sovereign God to accomplish His good purpose, to make you beautiful, that you would look like Jesus. (laughs) Isn't that worth it? Isn't that worth it? His sovereign hand would be working for our good. That He would give good gifts as the second purpose I would show you in in, in verses 12-13 through again. He's not simply making us work so that we find out it's futile. Yes, we'll find out it's futile. Yes, we'll find out it's never going to accomplish what we want it to accomplish. But it will always accomplish what he wants it to accomplish. This is a good gift from him. He said in the curses, he's speaking to Adam and Eve on that day, and he's talking to her about the the pains in childbirth and the longing to control her husband, but her husband's going to rule over her. And then he turns to Adam and he says, thorns and thistles are coming from your work, buddy. That there's anything other than thorns and thistles in this life is a gift from God. Enjoy it. Celebrate it. Appreciate it. But don't mistake those thorns and thistles for his wrath on his children. Remember, he's using them to make you beautiful. To turn your attention to him. To make you dependent upon him. That you'll recognize who's in control. And you'll learn to trust him. What's his purpose? To... to, to um, make things beautiful in their time, to give good gifts. And then the third one I'd point out is to cause mankind to fear him. Look at it in verse 14. He says, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added. This is His sovereign work. We can't change it. Nothing can be added to it. Nothing can be taken away. God has done it so that people fear before him. And we struggle with this. I know we struggle with this because, well, look, I mean, things that we fear we're supposed to run away from, right? Like a, a spider, oh, I'm going to run away, right? Right? I don't <laughs> scream like that, but I don't go near them. <laughs> things we're afraid of, we, we leave alone. We, we walk away from them. We separate ourselves from them. But the biblical, biblical perspective of God is that we're to fear him, but we're to run to him. We're to come and submit ourselves so, 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 prostrate before Him. Now, it could be all of the things, you know, many of us are raised in church. We come out of the womb, and the first, first day or event of our life is spent some, maybe, maybe the first day or event outside of home is spent at church. We've been raised in church and we've been taught all our lives about Jesus and how, how God has done so many good things for us through Jesus and we don't have to fear him. He's not to be feared. He loves us, he's for us, he wants our good. I think this idea of fearing God, in some ways, is difficult for us to comprehend because we feel like it makes God bad. But the Bible helps us by, by showing us to fear God is actually the beginning of all of our good. <laughs> Proverbs nine ten: The fear of the Lord, the fear of the Lord, is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Luke 1.50, one of my favorite verses in all of that book as we studied through it, it kept coming back over and over in my heart and in my mind. Mary is singing. She's uh, singing. It's called the Magnificat. And she is singing because she has just heard that she is going to be the, the, the mother of Jesus, the Savior of the world. And her response to God is worship. And she says this in the midst of her song. And His mercy, God's mercy, is for those who fear Him from generation to generation. Fearing God at first, it's actually that it bears good fruit in our life. Fearing Him most over everything else, it, it, it bears good fruit in our life. The truth is, if at some point, if at some point you haven't sensed a fear of God, then you probably haven't really considered Him fully. He is a fearsome God, He is a consuming fire. He is all-powerful. He knows the depths of our depravity. What He does can't be undone. What He does is eternal. Nothing can be added to it. Nothing can be taken away from it. He is in complete control. He is powerful enough to speak creation into existence. He is powerful enough to condemn us for all eternity. See, I think the point of that proverb, Proverbs 9 through 10, is to help us understand if we're really going to know anything, if we're really going to have any wisdom, if we're really going to, to have any sense of how things work in this world, it starts with taking a real look at who God is. He is not someone to be toyed with. He is not someone to be played with. But I love the balance of Luke one fifty because, as you look at that, you begin to see that at the moment you begin to fear him, you have this promise that his mercy is for you. You see, this is why we don't run away afraid. There's a reality in in Christian circles. We're all about trying to trying to oh let's talk about reverence. Let's talk about he's not like quaking fear. We we try to downplay the, the the word. The reason we can run to this fearsome and awesome God is because His mercy is for those who fear Him. The moment you realize that I am a sinner who deserves His condemnation is the beginning of the point at which you can walk into His mercy and receive His forgiveness. He wants us to fear Him. Because that's the initiation moment. That's the moment in which we walk into receiving All of his grace and his goodness. The forgiveness and redemption from sin. See, his purpose in doing all of this. Certainly to bring glory to his name. Certainly to demonstrate his sovereignty. But he takes us into account. He takes us into mind. And he does this work that would shape us and mold us. That would weave us into this beautiful tapestry. You know how he does it? Through his son, Jesus Christ. See, in Christ, a picture that Solomon couldn't paint for us, a picture that Solomon couldn't observe because it wasn't here yet, a picture that as wise as he was and as knowledgeable as he was, he couldn't look at the flow of time and see it thanks be to God, the scripture goes on and we begin to see how, Christ bring, or how God brings this all to fruition through his son, Jesus Christ. So, in Christ, first, in Christ, God sovereignly subjects himself to time in order to free us from it. There's a real time and place in which these things were as true of God in flesh as they are of you and me. There is a time in which it was a time to be born and a time to die for Jesus. A time to plant and a time to pluck up for Jesus. A time to kill and a time to heal for Jesus. There was a time in all of these things for Jesus because God in Christ subjected himself to this time so that we could be freed from it. And you just go back and you look at Christ's life in in the framework of time. And you'll see it over and over and over. I was shocked by it as I went to do this. I was like, is is that really true, man?" I'm thinking this, I'm like, well, does it test itself out in Scripture? Jesus' birth, Galatians 4 4, Paul says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. When the fullness of time had come, when it was time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. His ministry begins, and Mark it tells us about this ministry in Galilee beginning. Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee. You see the timing? John arrested, Jesus comes into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Contempt for Jesus comes. His life wasn't all roses and and, and flower beds, right? There's all kinds of struggles and problems he faced. John 7.30, so they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Jesus subjected himself to time under the sovereign hand of his Father so that we could be freed from it. Preparing for Passover, Matthew twenty-six eighteen, he said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. We know from our study of Luke just a few months ago that that was the night that Jesus establishes communion for for, for his family. So the Passover would be put away because now we celebrate communion. We celebrate the Lord's Supper. We remember his death uh, on on our behalf as the redemption and forgiveness of our sins. And then in his dying and his rising, Jesus, or I'm sorry, John 19.30, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is Finished. It is finished. There's nothing left to do. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Romans 5, 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. 1 Corinthians fifteen three 3-4. For I delivered to you as first importance that I also received what Christ did for our, died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. He didn't just have a time to die, but he had a time to rise. And it was already set out. It was already planned. It was, he subjected himself to time so that he could free, him, free us from it. And he did that by freeing himself first. And he did this so that any who would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever would believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Time will rule us All because of what Jesus did in Christ. In Christ we gain. The question, what gain is there to all man's works, all the things that we toil out under the sun? In Christ we finally gain. We gain all the good that God's sovereign work in time accomplishes. We can't gain anything from our own, but we can gain everything from His. John 5, 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes Him who sent me, has eternal life. A life where the tick-tock of the clock is a blessing to us and not just more seasons and struggles coming our way. He does not come into judgment, but he has passed from death to life. So what? What? What do I do? What do we do? Rest. You think, about, think, think about this since the moment we started reading Ecclesiastes, we've heard about all of these things that Solomon is observing and looking at. And he's talking about all this work and toil and things happening. Talking about the sun uh, rising on the, in, the, in the morning, setting in the evening. And then he talks about this weariness of this constant repetition and this constant cycle. And he's like, it's just weary. And then he talks about all the toil that he did. I gave my life to the pursuit of knowledge, to the pursuit of pleasure, to the pursuit of wealth and possessions, to the pursuit of, of hard work and it accomplished nothing. But when God puts His hand to it, there's nothing that can do, can be done to change it. You know what that means for you and me that trust in Him? Rest. Rest. He will bring these seasons and these times. There's no sense in fighting. There's no sense in running around anxious like chickens with our head cut off, trying to control everything. Rest in what he brings us. He's sovereign. And everything he brings is for our good so we can rest. Rejoice. Rejoice in the good things that come. In the work that we have to do, regardless if it's easy some days and not easy other days, that's life. Rejoice in the fact that we get to eat food, even if it's not a filet mignon every night. Even if it's not, even if it's, it's not to our liking every day. I grew up eating peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, and I wish I'd have learned sooner. Rejoice that there's food to eat. What does it say we think of when we sit down to eat something and think, that's not good enough for me? Rejoice in the good things that come our way and the gifts from God's hands. And rejoice. Even as you have to endure the unpleasant and difficult things that He comes, that He brings our way because He's using them to accomplish His good purpose and His good time. You know why James is able to say rejoice in suffering? You know why Paul's able to tell us rejoice in suffering? Because they finally learned a lesson we all need to learn. Even the most difficult days of our life are used by God for our good. We can rejoice. And finally, I would say, what do we do with all of this? Revere him. See, when we've caught a proper glimpse of God, when we've seen who He really is and it's caused us to fear Him that we walk in and begin to enjoy His mercy, that's when it's time to think about fear in the sense of reverence and respect. We can't move there first. It's not until He's done something for us in Christ and through Christ that we're able to really begin to revere Him and see Him as worthy of of our worship in such a way that we're not quaking on the ground, but we're standing in his presence, applauding his every move because it is for his good purpose to be accomplished in his good time so that one day, one day, we'll stand in the presence of Jesus Christ, holding hands with him, walking side by side with him, sitting at his feet, listening to him, hearing his voice with our own ears, seeing him face to face with our own eyes. So, revere him, worship him in all we do because of who he is and all he does.